years ago, a um, long time ago, I uh, was caused to read an article. It was really a chapter out of a book, but, but it stands kind of independently as an article uh, written years and years ago by um, um, a philosopher, theologian by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. Now, um, I have trouble even spelling Kierkegaard's name. Okay, it's got all kinds of extra stuff up above the, uh, uh, the letters. But he, he, he was an interesting uh, thinker, and he, he writes an article years ago called The Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. And it's existed in lots of English translations. I can't read, uh, I believe he might have been Danish. I can't read the language he originally wrote it in, but I can read it, the transcription into English. And what happens with Kierkegaard's talk is he identifies here the players. So think about this when you go in the sanctuary or in the venue, wherever or wherever you go for worship today. Think about the players uh, in in what he would call the drama of worship. He's going to identify the stage upon which this drama is occurring as all eternity. Heaven is watching what we're doing in worship. I find that an incredible thought, that the stage is eternity. He's going to say that the actors, okay, the actors on the stage is going to be a little bit different idea than what you and I may have thought growing up. I've always thought, and by the way, we're not helped by some of the ways we do things these days. For instance, we'll turn all the lights out in the, in the congregation and leave all kinds of light up on the stage. But really, the actors in the play are the members of the congregation, the people in the pew, you and me. Okay? We're acting out this grand drama in worship. You and I are the actors. Not the folks up on the platform in the spotlight. In fact, Kierkegaard is going to say they function as prompters to the play. What's a prompter? They kind of feed us our lines, right? They're, they stand in the wings, they've got the script, and they're saying, okay, do it this way now. Isn't that interesting to think that when um, we have such great leadership here with with Larry and Josh and Cole and all those that are, that are Don and all the, our different venues here. And what, what we best can see them as is they're prompting us in the pew to say our lines well, to participate in an appropriate and healthy way. Well, maybe you kind of can figure out where I'm headed with this, that if the members of the choir members of worship teams, members of the orchestra, and the leaders are kind of the prompters, not the actors, that's you and me in, in the pew, then who's the audience of worship? The Lord God himself. And it better only be him. It better only be him, Kierkegaard said. Isn't it true that we often get that kind of flipped around? We think that the congregation is the audience, that the people on the platform are the actors or the performers. We've just kind of got it backwards sometimes. When the truth is, we're acting this all out. We'll do that at, at 9.45 here in just, just a little, 9.15? I, I promise you, I still can't get this, 
the time schedule straight. At 9.15, we'll act that out in the sanctuary, in the venue, and other places where God is supposed to be, should be, ought to be, must be the audience of what's going on in worship. You tell, could you tell where I was going with that? I'm gonna let you read something in a minute. All right. Now, so, we're inviting here, the psalmist is inviting God to be our audience. Second verse. This ought to be really encouraging to you and me. If we pray to him, and you'll hear me pray this occasionally, just to acknowledge it, just to speak it into existence. God hears and answers our prayers. He answers prayer. That implies a couple of things. That somebody is praying to him. People are praying to him. So it implies that people pray to him. God can't answer the prayer you don't pray. So my question to you as we kind of embark on the, this new year is, do you pray to him? Is that a regular part of your life? Now, secondly here, according to Psalm 65 verse 2, it, notice it calls him, you who hear prayer, to you all men come. Secondly, he does more than just listen. He also responds when we pray. In fact, one of the great reasons to praise God is this overwhelming fact that God hears us and responds to us when we pray. Now, Steve, I've got a couple of verses I want you to find, if you wouldn't mind, please. Uh, um, let me have you find one, and I'll find the other one. 1 Peter 3.12, it's not on your outline, sorry. 1 Peter 3.12 Really poignant here. And if the rest of you would go with me to Psalm 34, just turn back a couple of pages, a few pages. Psalm 34, verse 15. We're going to hear Peter quote it here in a second. But here's how the psalmist David says it in another place. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. And his ears are open to their cry. Now it's going to just basically quote that in First Peter 3, I think. Steve, read it for us. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Isn't it interesting? One of the great reasons to praise him is this fact, that God hears us when we pray, and he does more than just listen. He also responds. He also responds. Steve, I'm going to have you go to Acts 16, uh, sorry, Acts 17, 24 in just a moment if you go ahead and go there. All right, now, in verse 3, what does it present as the great barrier to our prayers besides the fact that we don't pray? Them? <laughs> What's the per barrier here in verse 3? Let me read it for you. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you forgive them. So the idea here is that my sin can be a great barrier to prayer. It is a barrier to prayer. Look back at 32. This is another Psalm of David um, in the aftermath of his sin with Bathsheba. He says in Psalm 32 verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I didn't hide. 
I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. There's the idea that confessing my sin in prayer opens up dialogue. It opens up, it, it kind of uh, breaks down the barrier, the biggest barrier to prayer. Because God, I wrote in my notes from this week, God's forgiveness makes worship possible. God's forgiveness makes praise possible. Certainly David saw it here. The genius of David was not that he was perfect, because we know that he was far from so, don't we? The genius of David was not that he was perfect. He was far from perfect. The genius of David was that he knew he was forgiven, and he celebrated a forgiven heart every day, and he writes it a lot in, the, in his part of the Psalms, which is not only, by the way, kind of the hymn book of the Hebrew people, but I like to look at some of the Psalms, especially 51, 32, 139, some of these others that are so personal to David as David's own journal. We get to look over his uh, shoulder as he writes to God about his life, as he kind of pours out his heart to God, uh, especially when he's pouring out his heart, asking for forgiveness here. We get to read that. We get to celebrate it. Rod, are you in here? There you are. I've lost you. I'm sorry, come in. Uh, if, you, if you don't mind, she's, she's embarked on a new uh, little pattern in her devotional life that I think is going to be great, uh, really good for your heart. I couldn't do it, but she can do it. Uh, she was given uh, by one of our, our kids a Bible with really wide margins that has special paper on it that's designed for you to draw in the margins. Now, I can't draw a stick figure, but she's got like 157 colored pens, pencils that she's using for this deal. And she was showing me from her devotion yesterday this wonderful picture of a tower because God was depicted as a strong tower. Well, maybe if you're very visual like that, maybe that's something you want to take on. But the idea here is we get to watch David or listen to David's devotional thoughts in many of these, and they're used in public worship for the Hebrew people too. God does more, more than just listen. He also responds. And this barrier of my sin comes down when I confess my sin to him and his forgiveness makes worship possible. I'm gonna tell you this. Once I learned that I needed the forgiveness of God, the praise that emanated from my spirit was much more rich because I saw him as a forgiving God, as a loving God. And I saw him in a place that I would never attain, a holiness level that I would never attain. And yet, he loved me. What does Romans 5, 8 say? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves you and he invites you to pray that prayer of confession so that he can forgive it. Now, last question here from this, this area. Does God live in this building? Okay. My, most of my adult life has been spent with a lot of time in church buildings. And what I've found is church buildings, when you're in them by yourself, can be quite spooky. Not because God lives there. Just because I'm a spooky little guy, okay? I can't tell you how many times that I've closed, had to lock up the church 
somewhere in some city. And, um, and I've locked up the church and there's the only light, because I had to turn up the light in, lights in one end and then walk all the way to the other end. And the only lights that are glowing are those red exit lights. You know what I'm talking about? That are really, really spooky. And, and while I was trying to not trip over myself or some pew or an altar rail or something, you know, there would be some crazy where did it come from? Noise in the middle of the church, and, and I would half run the rest of the way. I've probably told you the story of I used to live up the parking lot from the church for several years. Our kids were raised partially in this little parsonage. And I, and I walked down the parking lot. It was Saturday night. I was prepping for something. I needed some resource for my office. So I, <laughs> I walked down the, down the parking lot. It, it was in Kentucky. All parking lots were hills in Kentucky, okay? And um, I walked to the, to the bottom of the parking lot, and I was going into the door uh, where my office was. And it had two side windows by this main door. And I remember thinking, you know, it'd be my, just my luck. I, I saw that red exit sign, you know, in there. It was spooky looking, and I thought, just be my luck. Somebody be in here trying to rip something off, and they'll shoot me or hit me or something. So I wanted to check and make sure there was nobody in that hallway before I entered the door. So I leaned over like this and looked at that side window, caught my own reflection, jumped 17 feet in the air. I don't think... I don't think that church buildings are spooky just because God lives here. Because I'm not really sure God lives, especially in a church building. Steve, read Acts 17, 24 to us. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He doesn't live. You know, they kind of had that problem. In fact, um, uh, in Acts 7 and 8, the building, the temple, kind of got Stephen Stone. They, one of the things they accused him of is preaching or speaking against the temple because he said a similar thing uh, to what is being said here by Paul. So, but if that is true, then look again here at verse, uh, verse four. I want to read it from the New American Standard. How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your court. So it's the idea that those of us who have been, been forgiven are invited to come near him. We'll be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. Now, we know God doesn't live in these buildings. But I believe the Bible is teaching here that our efforts to create appropriate and inspiring worship space, those efforts are good. I love the fact that when I come here, regardless of whether I'm in the chapel or whether I'm in the venue or whether I'm in the sanctuary, there's something about that place that inspires me. It just inspires me to worship. It doesn't have to be stained glass, although we got some of that here. Where I go for worship ought to inspire me to do so. And so we ought to pay attention to those kind of details. And, and we do here, and that's a good thing. Now let's go on. I'm, I'm going to read for you. I'm going to begin to read uh, in verse 5, and we're going to read 5 down through 8. Here we go. By awesome deeds, you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. You who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest sea, 
who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. They who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. Now here, um, I'm going to kind of skip ahead of reading some of the parallel passages, but I want to I get these uh, principles out for you here. The word awesome that is used here in verse 5 uh, is a word that's used way too often these days, but it's used here to describe a, a good and godly fear, all right? It's, the word awesome implies a good sense of fear. Um, uh, the idea being that we should fear him, not dread him. Look, go over to the right just a little bit. Let's read 76, 7. We're in 65. We're going to go just a couple of pages over to the right. 76, verse 7. You, even you, are to be feared. And who may stand in your presence when once you're angry? says here. The idea here is a reverence. The idea is not necessarily a dread, but it's a respect and a reverence. I think we have in many ways lost a sense of reverence in our culture, in our world. There are very few things in our culture, couldn't we argue, that are revered anymore. And so, the word awesome to live here uh, being uh, tapping into the awesomeness of God is going to apply this good sense of reverence and respect and fear, not dread. Now, look at verse 6 and 7 again. Kind of scan them there as I talk for a second. There are lots of questions that are kind of implied here. How did the mountains get here? Uh, it's kind of implied here in verse 6 and 7. How did the mountains get in place? Was it somebody with a bobcat? Do you know what a bobcat is? It's going to imply that you know what a bobcat is. Was somebody with a, with a, uh, um, was it somebody with a caterpillar? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's, it's interesting. You ever stood and marveled at the mountains and thought, how did they all get here? There are lots of descriptions on how they get here, but, but I'm going to suggest something else to you. Uh, another question that's kind of implied here. What makes the seas roar? And then be still. Okay, you could talk about weather patterns and all those kinds of things. You could talk about weather patterns, uh, if you will, as well, in, in erosion and those kind of things. If you, get, if you kind of extrapolate enough billions and billions of years out there, maybe you can get a mountain or two. But the Bible is in a habit of answering a lot of questions whose only answer is God. I like that. Because I think, however it happened, he oversaw it. The God who calms the seas here. Is the one who's in charge. Look at, go back to 22, Psalm 22. I want to look, I think I put eight on there, but I meant 22, 28. Okay, Psalm 22, 28. Here's what the Bible says. For the kingdom is the Lord's. Catch this next phrase. And he rules over the nations. 
The God who calms the seas can calm the nations as well. Is that important for you and I to hear kind of politically? The God who calms the seas can also calm the nations because ultimately he's master of both. Now, you, you could argue with me and say, well, wait a minute. The nations aren't really listening to God, many of them. I agree. But that doesn't take away from his power to influence. So again, like I said last week, that may keep me, at least for a time, from wringing my hands in fear. There are so many questions in the Bible whose only answer is God. Look at verse 8. They who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. It's interesting here. Our weather may be fickle. Weather may be fickle. But have you ever lived a day, okay, I've been on this earth for 61 and a half years or so. I've never lived a day where there wasn't a dawn despite the, uh, the weather. Uh, when we were in college, when I had just met Rhonda, uh, in, this would have been the spring of 77, I think. There was a, I don't know why, I don't really remember the reason, but there was a bad, like, two-day dust storm here. Anybody remember that at all? You remember it, because you'd never seen it. Thought the world was coming to an end. But it's interesting, even despite uh, kind of a brown sunset, there was one, and there was a sunrise the next day. Isn't it interesting, despite all these phenomena? And so the Bible says here, we have all experienced the cycle of days. One day follows another. Uh, you're not going to have a, a sunset and then another one without a sunrise in between them. Uh, and this, the Bible's going to say this is a prime example of God's creative faithfulness. In fact, even though the weather may be fickle here, when dawn breaks, the Bible says nature rejoices. I love that thought, that when the stars kind of go from our view and dawn breaks, nature begins to rejoice. Okay, now, I want to read a few more verses and we'll quit. Verse 9. You visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare the grain, for thus you prepare the earth. Your water, you water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. You have crowned the year with your bounty, and your paths drip with fatness. The pastures of the wilderness drip, and the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks, and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, they sing. I'm going to use a really silly word here to prove my point. It's clear here that as, uh, as this, one of the psalmists of ancient Israel, David doesn't see his God. The nation of Israel doesn't see their God as what I would call here a dinky deity. D-I-N-K-Y, a dinky deity. It says he's the Lord of rivers. Uh, ancient religions had a God for this river and a God for this stream and a God for this river. But no, uh, 
He's the Lord of water. He's the Lord over rivers. You and I kind of complain sometimes. We get a little worried about whether they're in California right now where there's too much and in our state where there's too little. But all waters are blessings from God according to scripture here. He's not little. He's not small. It's very important here that we catch that. So I encountered a thought this week that I wanted to kind of give to you, and that is in verse 10, what is your praise quotient? The idea of, of God's abundance, what is your praise quotient? There's a picture here of gentle, nourishing rain and praise that ensues from God's people in response to this gentle, nourishing rain. What I want to ask you about here is what is your praise quotient? Okay, so if, if you're looking at your prayer life over a pattern of uh, days, like so let's say let's look back at the last two or three days in your prayer life, how, would, how much would you say, um, how much would you say you praised God and how much would you say you petitioned God? So maybe the praise quotient would be uh, praise over petition or petition over praise. What would that percentage be? The Bible kind of makes a point here of indicating that what you and I ought to be about is praise as well as petition. The idea being that uh, we've got a lot to praise him about. When I compare the tally of petition and the tally of praise, do I see a problem in my heart life? Okay, one more thought. It sounds like in the last two or three verses of this, really all of this Psalm 65, it sounds like that all of creation is set up to worship God itself. Now, I'm not talking about pantheism here, you know, where we worship the mountains or we worship a tree. I'm talking about the trees and the mountains worshiping God. If the natural earth seems to be here, and if, if you and I are aware of it, effusive with worship, Shouldn't I also be? Notice what it says here. It's talking about the carts overflowing in, um, in, a, in a time of, uh, of harvest. When I was in college uh, in Florida, uh, I never bought citrus fruit. Okay, lived, lived kind of in the middle of the Orange Grove area of Florida for a couple of years. And I never bought citrus fruit for two reasons. First of all, for a while I worked at United Methodist Church, kind of in central Florida, right in the middle of the orange groves. And many of the, the folks in our church uh, were orange grovers. And I drove an old GMC pickup at the time. And I rarely came out from church, especially in harvest season, where there wasn't a bag of some kind of citrus fruit in the back of my truck. But the other reason I never bought citrus in central Florida was the fact that on the, this curvy road that was US 27 in front of our college, had a lot of bumps and curves in it. The orange trucks would always drop citrus beside the road, like near where I lived. And so I, I would harvest that stuff, so, you know. I gleaned, you're, you're absolutely right. But the idea was they filled those trucks to overflowing. That's the picture here of the carts being filled to overflowing. Uh, we ought to be thankful for that. Grasslands, praise him. The hills, the flowers on the hills are glad, it says. The meadows, the flocks in the meadows are uh, a, a source of praise. 
valleys verdant with grain or another place where God is being praised, it says. The idea here is that all of creation sings its praise as it does its thing to God. My question is, shouldn't I? You're going to get an opportunity today. Uh, you won't even have to put a hymn book in your hand, okay? The words are going to be up here, and you're going to have all kinds of really talented people leading you. You're going to get, and they're going to give you words to say. Isn't that wonderful? You're going to get, be given opportunity to praise. Will you accept that opportunity? Will you go with it? Will you make your joyful noise? Will you tomorrow, when you wake, and you see that there is yet another sunrise. Will you say something to God about that? Lord, I've lived this long and you've never been negligent in providing a sunrise. You are so faithful. Now you can look at me and say, you know what? I watch Nat Geo. I know how that all happens. You know, it has to do with, come on. If God takes his hand off of it, it comes unspooled. I'm telling you that. Will you, will you praise God tomorrow for his activity in all of creation? Look for it. Watch for it and give him the credit. Will you say, look, God, the grasslands are singing your praises and so will I. I invite you to do that with me. Read Psalm 104 for next week. We'll be right there, okay?